Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and less ukulele. In this episode, Denny and I talk with Caleb Meinke, Midwest Homebrewer of the Year, about his ways of thinking and designing AHA gold medal winning beers. We get the stories behind them and break down his recent winners, the oft-neglected American wheat and the challenging American light lager. Yeah, and not only that, but his American wheat was so good, he was invited to enter a competition against commercial brewers, and he won. Now, normally when a home brewer tells me that their beer is better than commercial beer, I kind of like to smile and go, okay, great, I'm glad you like it. Uh, sure, fine, fine, fine. Caleb proved that his definitely is, uh, and that is quite a task. Absolutely. Then find out how he did it. Time to listen. But before we do that, a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Now through August 31st, boost your brewing IQ with a free book when you join or renew your American Homebrewers Association membership. Choose from three books by some of the best brewing educators. Ray Daniels' Designing Great Beers, The Ultimate Guide to Brewing Classic Beer Styles, or from Stan Hieronymus, Brewing Local, American Grown Beer, or For the Love of Hops, The Practical Guide to Aroma, Bitterness, and the Culture of Hops. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to redeem this limited time offer. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Hey everybody, Denny here. We have a guest today who has brewed some award-winning beers that may be more award-winning than most people ever get to. Caleb Meinke is with us. He was uh, a gold medal winner in both the 2021 and 2022 National Homebrew Competition. I'm, I'm impressed as hell. So thanks for joining us today, Caleb. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure, man. Had you entered NHC uh, many times before these two gold medals? The gold medals were my second and third time entering. I entered one time prior, had a few beers go to the finals uh, in uh, 2020, or excuse me, 2019, that would have been. But yeah, uh, the last two years have been very productive, and th that 
first win in 2021 afforded me the opportunity to enter the U.S. Open uh, this year as well. Um, they let gold medal winners do that. Uh, it's a commercial-only <laughs> beer competition. Wow. And I said, okay. I, the American Wheat did well in the National Homebrewers Conference in 21. Let's see what happens in uh, the U.S. Open. And it ended up taking uh, first place in its category in the U.S. Open as well. Very, very impressive. So my question is, how long had you been brewing before you started racking up these medals? I am in year six of homebrewing. Do you enter a lot of competitions? I have in recent years. I think kind of coming out of the pandemic when competition started to gear back up, my, my wife and I, we have two kids under three. We weren't, you know, uh, oh, gung-ho man. to get back out <laughs> into. Right, yeah. Yeah, so we kind of started looking at things. I dabbled in competitions uh, before the pandemic, mostly to get anonymous feedback. Uh, I'm a big uh, guy about precision and pursuing um, better beer, uh, better process, better product. Uh, so that that's really what drove me at first to enter competitions. Um, and then coming out of the pandemic, it was a lot of kind of time on our hands at home. So I decided to start entering a few more. So recently, yeah, I've been doing a little bit more. Wow. So uh, let's let's talk about your brewing. And I guess probably the first thing that everybody's going to want to know is uh, what kind of system do you brew on? What do you use for equipment? Yeah, I get that question quite a bit from people. And uh, it's nothing special. I'm using a mostly gravity-fed three-tier system. I have an old 10-gallon megapot that I use for my hot liquor tank. I do have a spike um, ton that I use for mashing, and that, that's the best piece of equipment that I have. Uh, and my boil kettle is a, a kegle, uh, you know, cut off the top, ground it down. That's what I use. I just introduced a pump, as a matter of fact, so I didn't have to lift these kettles full of hot liquid. Uh, probably two years ago, I introduced a pump. But before that, you know, milk crates and, and camping tables, that was it. And that's what I still oh, use to man. this day. We all know that it's the brewer who makes the beer and the equipment only just helps. And I think that that's like a real, real good example of that but man if you've been lifting pots a while you're obviously a lot younger than i am <laughs> well i'm not i'm not feeling it these days but um <laughs> yeah it, it's a good workout if nothing else yeah i'm seeing a picture of you on uh on the midwest humber website where they're announcing your 2021 midwest humber of the year award and yeah i see that spike kettle and a precarious collection of milk crates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing this is a hobby and not a workplace. OSHA might have some words for you. Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd be put out of business if this was a, a true operation. Trust me. It, it's always been kind of a, an interesting experience. You know, I I kind of cross my fingers and, and point up to the sky every time I'm lifting a kettle up on top of those milk crates in hopes I don't end up with burns all over my arms or legs, you know. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm glad you got a pump, man. That that uh, will help keep you safe. Yes, indeed. Uh, that was the the primary objective. Once you have kids in the equation, your your mindset gets a little different uh, perspective, <laughs> you know. And yeah, uh, that was the the driver for me getting a pump. Was I I don't want to be, you know, I don't advocate anybody use a system like mine unless you have to. Um, I just use I continue to use it because it's it's worked for me. 
Uh, but Denny, to your point, like nobody should be lifting kettles like that. I know that. That's why I got the pump. I, I do have another like electric system sitting in my basement actually right now that isn't hooked up to anything that will be put into a designated space in the near future to eliminate that lifting and, and those hazards. Um, there's been some close calls, and I'm, I'm very lucky, honestly, that I haven't got burned somewhere along the way. Uh, Drew and I both love our electric all-in-ones, and so uh, I, I hope you do too. It, it has made my brewing a, a lot more enjoyable, you know. The spike mash tun you've got, is that temperature controlled? Uh, no, I'm, I'm using propane burners. Uh, I'll legitimately, uh, you know, get my strike water where I want it to be, or my strike temperature where I want it to be, get my grain in there, and I'll monitor the temperature throughout the mash. And if I have to, I'll fire up the propane burner on a low uh, heat setting right. um, and get it back to where it needs to be. Uh, I, the, the photo you were referencing, Drew, that was a good example of a day where that was very much needed. Uh, in Wisconsin winters, that mash temperature can drop pretty dang quick, you know. So every 10 to 15 minutes, I'll, you know, stir and reheat and get it back where it needs to be. So it stays within a, you know, two degree temperature range typically. Wow, that's that's pretty tight control, man. I, I grew up in Iowa, so I can kind of relate to Wisconsin winters. Yeah, that ain't that isn't too far off. I mean, I'm in southern Wisconsin, so it's pretty dang similar. Yeah, see, I grew up in Florida. I can't. <laughs> Drew has never seen snow in his life. That's not true. I lived four years in Boston. Remember? Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. I never, never had you pinned as a Florida guy, Drew. Yeah, I try and keep that quiet, but I am definitely a Florida <laughs> man. <laughs> that explains so much, doesn't it, Caleb? Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> Let's start by talking about your American wheat beer. Uh, what, what was your philosophy behind developing that? Uh, I brew beer for the most important thing in our lives for people. I'm, every beer that I brew is inspired by an individual person in my life. Uh, and this one is very near and dear to my heart. This beer was inspired by the birth of my daughter, Willow. I wanted to, I took some time, you know, to kind of get to know her. And when she was about six months old, I uh, decided that I would try to make a beer that would capture the, the most wonderful elements of who my daughter is. She's a very bright little girl. She's got this wonderful tuft of sandy blonde hair on top of her head bright blue eyes, beautiful smile. So to me, I wanted to make a, a pale, delicate beer that, you know, like the color of the, the wheat, it's very pale. It's three and a half SRM maybe, but I wanted that to reflect the color of her blonde hair. And I wanted the, the beer to be delicate. I wanted it to be kind of, you know, softer and rounded to reflect elements of her personality and the hop presence is uh driven by el dorado hops because she loves herself some citrus fruit and a little bit of mango she's big into like fruits the, the idea was to capture these elements of who my daughter is in this beer and that's primarily how i craft recipes i think about the person the experience you know if, if they're asking me to make a beer for them uh, it will be, okay, tell me about 
what you want it to be, but it'll also be, let's talk about who you are. So not to wax too philosophical there, but that that's where my beers are derived. That is really cool, man. I, I am really, really impressed that, you know, about how you came up with a beer that represents your daughter like that. So give us, give us like a, an overview of what the recipe for that American wheat was like. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's pretty standard. There's not a lot, uh, to it that would surprise people except for maybe one element of it, but we'll get to that at the end. So, uh, it's a grist of, uh, 60% Pilsner malt, 40% white wheat, water chemistry. I'm big into water chemistry. So that's a, a huge factor here. I lean into the sulfate content a little bit more than chloride content here. So it's 75 ppm sulfate to 50 chloride. I keep the bicarbonate low because it is a very pale beer. Uh, so there's only 16 sure. ppm, which is basically what is in RO water in the beer. Uh, and then, you know, adjust the, the pH with uh, either lactic acid or a touch of acid malt. And, of course, put rice hulls in it uh, as to not gum stuff up. And then uh, the mash temperature is, let me look this up, I think it's 152. Yeah, it's 152. And then the hopping schedule, basically targeting around 18 IBU, Tinseth, with Eldorado hops throughout the whole thing. And that's really it. The only surprise or the twist to this beer, uh, which I called out in the Zymergy after the conference in, in 21, uh, they post all the recipes in there, and I said, make sure you specify this in there. Uh, it's fermented with lager yeast. It's not fermented with ale yeast. Sure. I absolutely love lager beer, one. <laughs> but two, L17 Harvest, the the strain from Imperial, it's wonderful. That's the Augustiner strain, I believe. And it's beautiful. It, it does wonderful, amazing things. And it might surprise some folks to think about in a wheat beer, what would that do? But it pushes the the wheat character without compromising any elements of the, the crispness or dryness at the end of the beer. Sulfate is obviously the main driver behind how dry and crisp the beer is going to be. But with that lager beer character in there, it's, it, it's just different. I don't know how else to describe it. Well, you know, I've made lagers with ale yeast and ales with lager yeast, so I'm not completely blown away. But on the other hand, I'm really surprised that you think of that for an American wheat, and it makes a lot of sense. The other thing that I like, too, about your recipe is that you keep the sulfate a little bit higher than the chloride, because one of my gripes with most American wheat beers they just kind of seem a little bit insipid, you know? They're, they're just so mellow, and I like to have a little bit of bite to them. And so that's a that's a great way to go about doing that. Well, you think about what wheat is going to do to a beer. The, the idea of adding wheat to a beer is that it introduces a maltier, softer, rounder characteristic to a beer. To me... If you up the chloride content in a beer that already is going to have that character inherently, you're, you're almost guaranteeing that it's going to be a little bit flabby or a little bit too sweet uh, to the palate. Exactly. It, it's kind of like trying to force the ends of a magnet together when they don't want to attract. You know, it, you, you need to look <laughs> at it um, holistically to understand what your objective is. If I'm going to get malt and a little bit of sweet 
and some brownness out of wheat, why, you know, hit people over the head with a bludgeon of chloride when that, that wheat is already going to take care of it? Great, great philosophy. I can, I can really relate to that. And you said you used uh, unmalted wheat. Is that correct? Uh, no, it's, it's malted white wheat. Um, I'll typically grab the Breeze product. They're white wheat. I've just found that it's really soft. It's kind of like, um, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's almost pillowy, the, the character that it produces. I've used some avant-garde wheat b- before, too, but I, I've drifted back to the Breeze white wheat. Yeah, well, you know, if it works, it, it works, and that's all that it's about. Agreed. Questions or comments on the wheat before we move on? I do hope that people actually kind of allow the American wheat to be rescued. Mm-hmm. To your point, you know, both of y'all mentioned that it can be kind of flabby and boring, but I see absolutely no reason why an American wheat can't sparkle and shine. So bring it back. Yeah, I, I think that I think that Caleb uh, is really going about. Oh, let's let's talk about pH on that one. Uh, yeah, what what kind of pH do you shoot for uh, in the mash, and do you check pH of the the word or the finished beer? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm using RO water for all of my water profiles on any beer that I make, and I build that water profile up to meet you know very specific targets for the style and my objectives. pH, as we know, is a huge factor in that, not only in conversion, but also in producing the type of character that you want for your malt and for your, your hops. For this one, you know, 18 IBU, I have a tendency to try to keep the pH at around 5.3 to help the hops express a little bit right. better. There's not a lot of hop presence there. But the comments that I get, uh, you know, when this beer is in competitions are always consistently about how the, the hop presence and hop aroma is still there. You can smell it and you can taste it. And part of that is a derivative of the pH. A higher pH is actually going to let hop, hops express a little better. It won't be as sharply bitter, but they'll be fruitier and, and more aromatic. But that that five point three is still low enough that the beer gets like a a bit of a lift from it, you know, and that helps keep the flabbiness out too, you know. Absolutely. Uh, do you just check mash pH, or do you deal with the uh, the wort and or beer pH? Do you ever adjust later? Um, I haven't had to in a long time. I will only really look at downstream pH if something in the mash is unexpected. So if I'm targeting 5.3 and I hit 5.3, the likelihood of me checking the the uh, wort or beer pH is very minimal. I kind of know, you know, from experience where it's going to end up as long as I'm on target. If I'm expecting 5.3 and I'm hitting 5.5, one, I'd probably panic and try to adjust it immediately. <laughs> but two, I'm going to look downstream. Right. Try to figure right. out, you know, if everything is where it should be for fermentation. Great philosophy, man. I can just totally relate to that whole concept. So uh, let's let's move on to the American light lager, which is one of those styles that a lot of people ridicule. But damn, a well-made one is fantastic, and it is a difficult style to get right because there's no place to hide. Uh, so what was your approach to the American light lager? Well, first I'll uh, you know, kind of address the last part of your commentary there. The reason why I wanted to, one of the reasons I wanted to make and master or get close to mastering 
this style of beers because, precisely because there is no room to hide in it. It is a test of skill and a test of um, process, recipe design, etc. That that I think is really hard to match in any other style because it is so light. Maybe the liked beer you could you could test uh, your process with too, but the light lager uh, is very difficult. Anything that is wrong with it, you can taste or smell. So it attracts me because of that. <laughs> it's a challenge for you. Absolutely. I, and people accuse me of being a perfectionist. I always say to them, I'm not a perfectionist. Perfection is unattainable. I'm in the pursuit of something better. <laughs> so I'm never satisfied with what I make. Uh, and people give me crap for it, but I'm genuinely in the pursuit of something better. There has to be a better product, a better way. That's always what I'm after. So the, the light lager beer permits me to really test new ideas, thoughts, processes to determine if, in fact, they hold water. What's the recipe for the American light lager? Yeah, uh, this recipe originated, again, inspired by people. So I'm going to give you that background and then I'll go into the, the recipe design if you're cool with that. Sure. So when my wife and I uh, moved to the house that we're in now about two years ago, and the house is on a, a 10-acre property close enough to, to Madison and Milwaukee that it's an easy drive, far enough out there that it's kind of removed. We, you know, we can be in peace and quiet out here. It's a beautiful spot, and we're very lucky to have it. Now, the reason why we ended up here is because there was a gentleman who built the house who was trying to do a for sale by owner situation a couple of years ago. I started talking to him and engaging with him. Um, and it took a, a long time, months for us to kind of land on a spot and a decision where we said, okay, we're actually going to buy this house. But over those months, I got to know this man, Len, quite well. And he took the time to show me the ins and outs of everything he knew about this spot that he had occupied for 20 years. Uh, and, you know, we talked a lot about uh, beer and enjoying the space. And and he was a, a Miller Lite guy. I said to him, Len, you know, I know you're not a big beer guy outside of your Miller Lights, so I'm going to try to make one. And that's where this came from. Man. So I, I set to work, designed the recipe. I was using Pilsner malt as the base malt originally, but I drifted away from that because um, I used the Vireman floor malted Bohemian Pilsner. That's kind of the the grain that I have on hand all the time. It tends to be a touch sweet uh, at times. Uh, I've learned to control that with a lower mash temperature. Some of the sweetness gets kind of worked out as the enzymes work. I've found at lower temperatures, can't quite explain why, but it does affect, uh, affect the flavor of the uh, outcome. But for this one, I decided to uh, split the the majority of the base grain between brewer's malt, so two row from Brees, and then the floor malted Bohemian Pilsner. The rest of the grist, 20% is flaked corn, which Miller Lite, I believe they use corn. If not, I made a mistake. Uh, so that, that's really <laughs> yes. it. It's, yeah, you are right. It is... 40% brewer's malt, 40% pilsner, and 20% corn. So what about the uh, yeah the hops and yeast? 
Yeah, uh, Hollertown middle through hops, uh, targeting around 12 IBU Tinseth. The yeast is, again, the Imperial Harvest Augustiner strain. Uh, I, I use that and reiterate it for a lot of different beers. Sometimes I'll use a pitch of yeast five or six times before I retire it. And, that, you know, that's a good digression here, uh, Denny, because actually you helped me with that online. I was talking about... <laughs> Oh, my God. And it worked? It worked. It worked well. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to reiterate uh, Kolsch yeast. And what I mean by that, it's not it's not washing yeast and storing it. It's legitimately dumping fresh wort onto the cake of a beer that you just racked into a keg. I've been doing that. This is one of the beers that when I get a, a, a fresh batch of the L17 Harvest, I'll start with this beer because it's light. And you recommended to me, hey, if you're going to do that, just Pull half of the cake out so you get some growth, Right. oxygenate the wort, and that will keep the, the yeast happy. And they will keep, keep budding and growing and replicating, and you'll get good results out of it. And your advice was 100% accurate. Uh, I've been able to run some of these pitches of yeast in the same fermenter, taking half the cake out, dropping new wort, oxygenated wort, onto that cake been able to do it six, seven, eight times with some yeast before I start noticing a difference. I'm glad that worked for you. It, it definitely comes to my own experience because uh, for a while I was just using the entire slurry from a previous batch. And somebody had mentioned to me too that, you know, a little bit of yeast growth will help your flavors. And so I started trying it and uh, it worked great. And so that's what I advise people to do based on my own experience. So glad it's working for you. It works. And, you know, like I said, this a light lager beer will typically be the first or second that I use with uh, a new pitch of the yeast. The The second or third beer then that almost always follows this one is the American wheat, but it's the same yeast being used, literally the same cake from one beer to the next, uh, just with a little bit of it pulled out. What do you see that makes you go, okay, time to retire this, or do you just literally do it by generation count? Uh, it, it's a flavor and aroma factor. I, I can't say that anything has ever gone bad, right? It's not like I smell a beer and go, oh my God, I have to dump this or taste a beer and go, this is unpalatable. It simply, it drifts a little bit away from what you'd expect, I guess. So like when I was doing this with Kolsch, I noticed that by the, I think it was the eighth, eighth time I had done this, the, the yeast almost became too clean. That uh, subtle pear note that's that's typically involved with that strain really wasn't there anymore. Uh, the beer almost tasted more like, I don't know, thin maybe, but the, the flavor profile was just kind of too indescript. It was too blah. So I retired that yeast at that time. The beer was perfectly drinkable. Uh, my, my friends and family enjoyed it, but it's that experience that says, okay, it's time to pull the plug and, and get something fresh. Well, and that's your pursuit of better, right? The other question is, so let's say you, you take a yeast out a full seven generations. How long do you have that that particular strain in the brewery, you know, that particular lot, shall we say? And how how much time between batches? Yeah, so I'm I'm timing my brewing to when the previous beer, the beer that's currently sitting on that yeast, is ready to keg. So <laughs> much to my wife's chagrin, I brew Basically three times a month, typically, is how the cycle works. 
uh, because I have two batches of beer going at any time uh, to introduce a little bit of variety. It's great to have like, you know, six lager beers on tap, but it's also good to have some ales. So I like to run an ale yeast and, and a lager beer yeast as I'm doing this. Uh, so, you know, I will let the beer go uh, through its fermentation cycle, two to three weeks, give it time to clean up, uh, do the diacetyl rest, all that stuff. And then on brew day, I will brew the wort. I will get it to the point that it is chilled and I have a sanitized vessel that it's sitting in. Uh, I haven't transferred it. It's really the boil kettle just with a lid on it and a sanitized cloth to make sure that everything is good and it can sit in the vessel for as long as it needs to. And then I will take that current beer that's done fermenting, transfer it into its keg, and then immediately when that is fermentation vessel is emptied, I will take a sanitized spoon or tool, scrape out half of the yeast on the bottom of that cake, it's a little stainless steel conical, and then I will rack the wort from the covered boil kettle into the fermenter onto that yeast cake. So it's it's all happening in, you know, a period of 20 minutes, let's say. Right. And then I seal that vessel back up, drop it into my chest freezer, set it to the temperature I needed out with the ink bird, and let it go nuts. And that, that cycle will just continue. So in other words, you're far more planned out and Johnny on the spot than I would ever be. Yeah. Yeah. I, like pre- <laughs> me too, precision man. runs deep with me. I, <laughs> I think if anybody saw how brewing impacts my life, it might make them a little crazy. You know, it, I have a calendar. I know what I'm brewing. I know what days I'm brewing. It's planned out. I, I'll talk to my, my friends in the brewing community here about, you know, what I'm brewing three months from now. And they'll be like, dude, I don't get how you do that. It, it, I'm, I'm a unique animal, and I, I don't recommend it to anybody because it can give you a little bit of neurosis. But Caleb, what do you do for a living? I am the fraud and risk prevention manager for a large telecom cellular provider in the United States. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> yeah, Drew, Drew used to do something similar. Yeah, but I'm never that organized. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, man. I'm the cat hey. trying to be heard. <laughs> I, I got a question, man. You said you mash this at a lower temperature. Do you do a longer mash when you reduce the temperature? Yeah, uh, I do, Danny. Thanks for, for bringing it back to the, the recipe, too. I kind of uh, put us on a long digression there. Um, yeah, so this this beer is mashed at 146 degrees for 75 minutes. So longer than the 60 minutes. It's low, um, but it does a good job. And I'll tell you, a lot of people who are making American light lager beer are using extra enzyme to get the fermentability down, or excuse me, up, so that the, the, the final gravity is lower. I don't do that with this. I don't find that I have to. This right. beer has a, an original gravity of 1045, and it will typically finish around 1005, 1004 without any enzyme additions yeah and that's man that's the the beauty of the uh, long low mash temperature and you know the reason i asked that question was because i've discovered too that uh, when i go to a lower mash temp like when i'm making a triple i'll mash anywhere from 146 to 150 or 146 to 148 mm-hmm. and go for 90 minutes and not only is does the temperature 
or help determine the fermentability of your mash, the length of the mash does too, right? You hear people saying, what's the point? Because all the conversion is done in like 15 or 20 minutes. But it's like, what kind of conversion? And obviously, the longer you go, the uh, more fermentable the work gets as the uh, the enzymes continue to break down the sugars. Yeah, there, there's amazing uh, resources out there uh, that reinforce that exact point. I've, I've used these in conversations with folks in my local homebrew club and, and online to try to help folks understand that the brewer's window, that, that 1052 and around that range, is really because that's the optimum place for both the alpha and beta to be working simultaneously. But right. the, the beta loves lower temperatures. Its ideal range is like around, I think the, the peak of the bell curve is like 145. It might even be a little bit lower than that. And then I'll always ramp up at the end of the mash to, to 168. And, you know, the the old uh, claims there was that that stops enzyme activity. But if you look, as you're climbing through that range, you're actually encouraging the alpha amylase to do more work. And at, at 168, your beta's gone, for sure. It's been denatured. But at 168, that alpha is still going to be doing good work. You know, it, it tapers. It's not as active as it would be at like 156, but it's still doing work. Yep, man. I, I agree with you completely there. I, I have had exactly the same experience. When I'm doing a step mash like that, starting with a really low temperature, I always end up with that really high temperature. And especially, it's not going to denature your enzymes for at least 20 minutes or so. Yeah, yeah. It's not snap of the finger by any means. At, at 168, certainly, you're starting to denature. Uh, like I said, the beta is all gone at that point in time. Right. Certainly, if you're if you've had a seventy five minute mash, you know they've done their work and they're they're out. Uh, but your alpha, yeah, it's going to keep going. Yeah, it, enzyme temperatures are not light switches. No, no, not at all. I mean, nature doesn't like things that are like you know on or off. It tends to be more of like I said earlier, the bell curve. Mm-hmm. You get a, a ramp right. up and a ramp down. Okay, Drew, anything else you want to talk about there with uh, the light lager? Well, okay, so you are using, I'm trying to think back, you're just using flaked maize, right? Yeah, that's right. The question that then occurs to me is, uh, have you ever played around with trying to make this with corn grits or other sorts of corn or rice? Like actually, you know, starting with a raw cereal. I, I haven't yet. Uh, with a different beer, I've used uh, rice. And wild rice, actually, which isn't rice, but kind of similar. Grass. Yeah, right. Where you're, you're, you know, cooking them on a stove. And I and, uh, haven't ever really done a true cereal mash. I, I can't say that. But I've tried and experimented a few different ways. Not with this beer. Maybe in the future. But not right now. Curious, because, I mean, when you are still, you're still brewing with a relatively simple setup. Yeah. Um, but you also are, you know, have this precision minded. So it's, it'll be curious to see if you, if you do try it, if you, if you detect a difference, you know, my club, the Maltos Falcons, we have a long history with making a sort of American light lager, although our club's more focused mm-hmm. on making a Budweiser clone. So it's rice based instead of corn based. And the guys who fiddled with it forever in a day and very, very good at it. We're very insistent. You have to use real rice. You can't start with, you know, mm. uh, rice flakes or rice solids or something. And they would always go through the whole process. And I'm, I'm never entirely certain if they're, if they're correct or if they're just being 
pedantic. <laughs> you want to know what my I, vote I mean, I is? Would, I would trust them. It's kind of a legendary homebrew club. You know, you, you guys are known for making good stuff out there. So I don't know. It, it's it's worth exploring, certainly. And if, if they've done the exploration and they can, you know, point to the sheet and say, here's the, the pocket, um, there's got to be something to that. So I... You know, these guys were also the ones who started making it with two plastic buckets. So <laughs> <laughs> they've been at it for a while. Yeah. They've been at it for a while. So, yeah, that's always one of those questions that, that we have is like, so, you know, like you're talking about the process that you've done and brewers in particular, because of the way that brewing kind of works, we're sort of process people and it's, it's not broke. Don't fix it. Right. Um, and so sometimes you get those things where it creeps in like, well, this is just the way we've always done it. So I'd be really curious to see like, you know, if there is really a detectable difference, Denny, I know your answer is going to be no. Um, but I'd still like to actually see that and have it done side by side, you know, fresh flaked product, right? Cause we know that flaked corn and flaked rice can go rancid. So you don't want to use rancid flakes. But fresh flaked product versus freshly milled corn grits or freshly milled rice and see if people can really tell a difference. Corn malt's off the table because corn malt definitely makes a difference. Yeah, corn malt just has too much flavor to, to put in something like that and, and have yeah. it stay true to style, for instance. I, I think, you know, you, you've got my mind kind of spinning here. And now I'll probably <laughs> you know, look at my look at my calendar six months from now and pick the date to uh, to give it a try. Oh man, let it, let us know how it goes and what you think. How how far are you currently planned? Uh, it's typically three or four months. Good lord, man! I'm, I know, I'm, man. I'm, I'm, pl- just, I'm planned you know. for next week. <laughs> <laughs> I I generally the day before go look and see what I'm on hand and go. Okay, that's what I'm going to brew. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> everything. Nothing's written in stone, right? I mean, there there are times that. Uh, I have a miss on my inventory or, or something and I go, Oh dang, I don't have that grain or those hops. So I do have to come up with something on the spot. Um, but yeah, I'd like, I like to have a roadmap at least if I take a detour to go see a giant ball of yarn or something, so be it. Uh, but <laughs> I, I'd like to at least know where my destination is. Why do I suspect oh. you're a weird elf fan? <laughs> <laughs> and given that you are, you know, that you do a lot of competition stuff. I imagine that, you know, doing the roadmap is also kind of important for you from a competition standpoint, you know, like I need to have fresh beer for a competition. Yeah, it's a, it's a factor, but I would say it's a lot smaller factor than people probably assume. Uh, I'm more, when I, when I enter competitions, it's more of what do I have, you know, now, or that will be ready in a few weeks when that competition, or when I have to get the bottles in for that competition, I let the, the beer dictate the entries, not the competitions dictate the brew days. If that makes sense. Yep. So I'm just kind of brewing what I want to brew and whatever's ready for a given competition. When it comes up, I'll put it in the competition. Yeah, man, I discovered at least for myself, that's the best way to go about it. Uh, Every time I tried to brew for a competition, I would just totally dick chimp the beer. (laughs) When I would, when I would go, Oh, this is a damn good beer. Maybe I should enter it in a competition were the times that I did uh, a lot better. I agree with you. Uh, you know, brew what you like, brew what you love, brew what you know. Uh, and odds are, if you decide to put it in a competition, it'll do pretty well. Um, but if you're trying to, you know, 
put on a blindfold, throw darts at a dartboard and make something specific for a competition that's outside of your wheelhouse or something that you're not really excited about. I, I truly think that reflects in the end product. I think the yeah. inexperience and, you know, perhaps even the the lack of enthusiasm for whatever you're making show up. Maybe it's because right. of a lack of attention to detail or I don't know, but I truly think that happens. Yeah, I, I agree, man. I, I think that there's some like mysterious connection between uh, your state of mind and the beer that you make. No doubt. No doubt. Denny? Yes? Stop being a hippie. I'm sorry. I was going to say, Drew, is that hippie enough for you? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm Mr. Science Guy. I'm Mr. Precision Guy, and I'm I'm nodding in, in agreement with Denny right now. So maybe that makes me a little bit hippie, but he, he, it's true. I swear to God, it's true. Oh, well, look, I mean, I, I joke about Denny being a hippie, but what nobody really realizes is I'm the stealth hippie. They all look at <laughs> That's <it>. true. <laughs> Drew is the one who lights incense before he brews. This is true. Huh. I'm learning a lot today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. So, Caleb, before we let you go and get on about your day, any other sort of, you know, you said, hey, you're big about precision and, and paying attention. So, Along those lines, any other thoughts that you think people need to keep in mind when they're trying to make a beer that, okay, fine, it wins awards, but really more importantly, ends up being a really tasty beer? Yeah, and I I want to make sure that those priorities are in the right order. I, I think the objective should always be the latter. Make a tasty beer. Like I said a few minutes ago, make it something you love. Uh, I, I've said for a long time that the best compliment I can get about a beer that I've made is that people are enjoying it without thinking about it. In other words, you think about the context of beer. What, what is beer? It is basically an existential enhancer. We enjoy beer when we are with loved ones, when we're at parties, when we're celebrating something, when we want to relax. After a long week, we drink beer to enhance the experiences that matter most in our lives. That, that's been a part of human culture for millennia. So when it comes down to it, the, the focus should always be on how can I make whatever I'm crafting better or how can I make it that existential enhancer that people have and it's elevating whatever they're engaging in without distracting or detracting from that experience that to me is the pinnacle if you can get to a point where your your beer is clean tasty delicious people aren't going to stop to think about what's going on with it they're just going to enjoy it so always have that be the first priority Right on. That's what it is all about, isn't it? The enjoyment. And especially if you can get double enjoyment by uh, having a great time when you brew it. Yeah, 100%. I, people find it funny that I engage in this, you know, four to six hour process uh, three times a month, but it, it truly is meditation to me. You know, I can sit there in my garage and just be with the the ingredients with the the kettles and the 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 surroundings and enjoy what's going on during that process it's work but it's work that's fulfilling 
it's a hobby that um, helps me, you know, de-stress and put all of these things that that I love doing. The, you know, the the art and the science. Those those elements of my brain meet in this little hobby, and it, it's a, a perfect balance. It's a perfect way to find enjoyment and to, you know, for me at least, encapsulate the elements of the people around me that I care about and that I love and to give them something that is reflective of my experience with them. So yeah, enjoy it. Enjoy the hell out of it. Every element of this should be focused primarily on getting the most and the best out of it, whether that's you and your experience brewing or the end product it doesn't matter. That's where it should be. That's what it should be. And thank you for being on a uh, guest on this episode of Existential Homebrewing. I'm your host, John Paul Sort. <laughs> Don't yeah, I was going to say that is a great way to wrap things up because that is so much my philosophy too. Uh, and I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only one. So, uh, Caleb Meinke, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about your award-winning beers and giving people some ideas about how to go about it. Happy to do it. Thanks for the opportunity, guys, and hopefully we will uh, talk soon. Let, let us know if you uh, remake that beer using a different type of corn. It likely will happen, and I will certainly reach out when it does. Yay. Cool. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of existential homebrewing with Caleb. I, I, you just love that, don't you? Admittedly, yeah, I'm a dork for it. But... <laughs> What do you think of his magic combination of precision, simplicity, and biography? How does it compare with your way of brewing? For me, I may not be precise, but I love simplicity and I do love some stories. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, whatever he's doing, he's doing it right. And I have to admit that I just really, really loved his philosophy also. Yeah, I can't tell you the number of times you said right on man and groovy in the edit. <laughs> Well, you know, when somebody's right, they're right. <laughs> so how about y'all? Will you embrace the neglected American wheat or the challenge of the American lager? And will flaked maize versus a cereal mash actually make a difference? Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum ever to exist across the space-time continuum. And, of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is the Pongo Fund. It's uh, kind of like a food bank for pets. Uh, you know, if people can't afford food for their pets, uh, if pets are in a tough situation, the Pongo Fund helps out. Throw us a few bucks and we will throw it to them. Absolutely. Help us feed the dogs and the cats of the world. That's right. Until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. And the brew is out there. 
seltzer sensation is here, and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are formulated to make up to five gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset. 